The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat." As we go through, I have a lot of slides for you tonight. If you're taking notes, I really want you to be able to grasp there is a really great structure and a thematic thread that we're going to trace as we go through this. And as we go through, each section is going to be identifying what we've just seen. And the first part is a prohibition. The first thing we see is a prohibition from the Lord in the first two verses. God is going to warn them, you may not come into the Holy of Holies. So this chapter is the heart of Leviticus. It is the center of the book of Leviticus. It may not be in terms of number of verses or words, but structurally and the outline, which we're going to look at in a minute, it is the very center of this book. Also, we know that Leviticus is the structural center of the Pentateuch, of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So this is the center of the center. And in a minute, we're going to get to the center of the center of the center. This is an important chapter. We see reference here that this is taking place after, verse 1, the death of the two sons of Aaron. This took place in chapter 10, you remember. Nadab and Abihu, at the ordination of the priests, were struck down with fire from the holy place because it says they offered strange or unauthorized fire before the Lord. That is left nonspecific. We can say at the very least it was not what the Lord had ordered them to bring. And that launched us into chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, which are all about the cleanliness laws, about the cleanliness of the foods that you eat, about what to do after a woman has a child, uh, various kinds of leprosy and skin diseases, and how to be cleansed of those things. Because the Lord is telling them, you can't just approach my house. You need to be clean to approach my house. And chapters 11 through 15 were a legal section stuck in between these two narrative sections. So chapter 16 is picking up in the story right after chapter 10. And Aaron is warned that he may not enter the Holy of Holies. Your uncleanness, that's what we're supposed to gather from going through those chapters, is too great. You can't come in to me where the cloud is. And this is the problem of the book of Leviticus. And by that I mean this is the problem that Leviticus was written to solve. We can't approach the presence of God. It's great that we have the tabernacle where God's presence will dwell, but the problem has never been with God's presence. It's been with our uncleanness. So even though God is here, how are we able to approach him? We saw this back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, where Adam was driven out of the garden. And the Lord said, a cherub, a cherub to guard with a flaming sword so that he could not come to the Lord again. Exodus chapter 40, verse 35, the very end of the book of Exodus. It says, they built the tabernacle, the presence of the Lord descended, and Moses could not enter the tabernacle because the glory of the Lord was too great. And there's a wonderful dual sense to that verse because it's glorious at the end of Exodus, but as a beginning of the book of Leviticus, it's tragic because we can't approach the presence of God. Romans 3.23 tells us why. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We can't approach God's glory because we don't measure up. 
And this is the basis of, of everything that Christ has done for us. This is step one of what we believe as Christians, that we are not good enough for God. And we see here in chapter 16, the very center of the book of Leviticus, it starts out with a prohibition saying, you can't come in here. However, we know that the Lord did not commission this tabernacle to be built to exclude his people. That just makes sense, right? God didn't say, build this house for me so that I can keep you out. He says, build it so that I can dwell among you. And that's why we have chapter 16. And really, the answer to this question the holy place, the most holy place where God is, is the entire purpose of the Pentateuch in large measure. Let's look at the whole Pentateuch. The Penta means five, right? Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Let's start with Genesis. Genesis describes the fall from God going down to Egypt, that they leave the promised land and go down to Egypt, which is always a picture of sin and rebellion. And now in the story, obviously there are reasons for it, but we've got to look at this 30,000 feet, looking at the structure of the Pentateuch. Book one, they leave the promised land and go down to Egypt. Now in the book of Exodus, they come up out of the land of Egypt and they go to the Mount Sinai. And the book of Exodus ends with the construction of the tabernacle. Then you get the book of Leviticus, which is all about how are we going to dwell with God in our midst? It might seem like a really, a really good way to slow down the story, but this is the most important thing because the problem of Genesis was we can't go into the presence of the Lord. Now in the book of Exodus, we built a house for the Lord. Leviticus tells us how we might abide in the presence of the Lord. Then you have the book of Numbers, which is a parallel to Exodus. It's the journey away from Sinai. And then Deuteronomy describes the, the preparation to enter the promised land. So remember, this is called a chiastic structure. It's related to the Greek word chi, which is the letter chi, which is the letter X. You can see how it looks like half of an X as it's structured there. Genesis is going away from the land. Exodus is going up to Sinai. Leviticus, you're at Mount Sinai. That's the pivot point. Then you're coming back to the promised land, and then you're entering the promised land. But this time, you've got the presence of the Lord with you. So you can see how that center pivot point in the middle makes all the difference. And you see a mirror on the second half of a chiastic structure that is totally changed by what happened in the center. And the reason I'm taking time to describe this to you is because this is exactly how the Pentateuch as a whole is structured, and especially the book of Leviticus, and even the center of the book of Leviticus. We just keep going down, 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 and we end up seeing the whole point of all this. So let's look at the structure of Leviticus here, because we are in chapter 16 at the center here. The central chapter of the Torah. By this I mean the middle chapter of the middle book of the first five books of the Bible is chapter 16 that describes the Day of Atonement. So the first seven chapters were all about the book of sacrifice. It was various laws and rituals that they had to go through. Then chapter 8 through 10, you had the ordination of the priests, which of course ended with the tragic death, Nadab and Abihu. Then we had chapters 11 through 15, which described the cleanliness laws right? About how we are to conduct ourselves. Right in the middle, you have the day of atonement, which makes the way for us to stay in God's presence. Right in the middle. After that, we're going to have the moral laws, 
which are going to parallel the cleanliness laws. Then you're going to have special rules for the priests and how they are to be separate from the rest of the people, which is in parallel with the ordination of the priests. Then you're going to end with the festivities and the festivals in the year of Jubilee and other ceremonies that are parallel with the sacrifices. So you see this entire book has a chiastic structure and right in the middle is the Day of Atonement, which means the middle of the middle is chapter 16. Are you starting to get how significant this is? That when Moses put this book together, put these first five books together, he structured it in such a way so that your eye would be drawn to what happens here. And that is the day of atonement. The Hebrew word here is Yom HaKippurim. Yom HaKippurim. The day of the atonement. It also... Hakipurim can mean the covering. And we're not going to see that name in this chapter. It's not going to come until chapter 23, 27, where it formally names this the Day of Atonement. The English word atonement, which, with which we translate Hakipurim, is really an old English word where you cram together the words at and one and then meant. So to make something at one, something that was broken to bring it back together. That's at one mint or atonement. It's, re- it's connected to the idea of reconciliation, which is exactly what we're going to see here. God is going to make a way that the holiness of God, the uncleanness of man can be brought together in his tabernacle. Reconciliation, atonement. And isn't that the entire problem of the book of Genesis? We can't be in God's presence anymore. In Leviticus, God is going to make a way where man can be in God's presence again. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Now, of course, this is Old Testament. It's only a shadow of the glory that would come in Christ. But like Paul said in 2 Corinthians, it didn't have no glory. And this is wonderful for us. This is all about how the priests and the people and the tabernacle might be cleansed of all that uncleanness we just read to dwell in God's presence. The first batch of revelation that God gave us, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books, the purpose of that first revelation was how to dwell in God's presence. And isn't that really the purpose of all revelation? How we might come back to God? The law of Moses exists to reveal our sin, to reveal the requirements to get rid of our sin, And all points to Jesus. And we're not going to wait till the end to do this. We're going to track Jesus all the way through this chapter who purchased our atonement with his own blood. We already read Romans 3.23 that says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the next two verses say, And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. We all fall short of the glory, but God has made a way through Jesus Christ to bring us back to himself. And this is all prefigured here in the book of Leviticus chapter 16. So we're gonna look as we go through the ritual itself, so that you can understand what was going on. We're also going to see again how it fits in the broad picture of the Pentateuch, and we're going to see its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So we started out with this prohibition. Let's get to verses 3 through 10, and this is actually going to be the next two sections of our outline. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. 
He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel, or the scapegoat, depending on your translation. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Okay, so the first thing we saw was a prohibition. You can't come in here. We know that, Romans 3.23. However, right immediately in verse 3, God goes, but I will make a way so that you can approach my presence. And this ceremony, which was to be done once a year, is called the Day of Atonement. So the first thing we're going to see in verses 3 through 6 is what I'm calling the setup. The Lord is telling Aaron everything that he's going to need in order to perform this ceremony. And then in verses 7 through 10, this section is the first piece talking about the scapegoat. We're not going to talk about that right now. We're going to hit that when we get to it a little bit later. So for right now, let's just look at what God tells Aaron he has to do first. Notice this. Aaron was not to wear the royal priestly garments with the ephod and the turban that had the gold plate upon it. He wasn't to wear the ephod that had all the gems and the blue that we read about before. These are simple linen garments. This is what the normal priest would wear on a normal day. He was to wash himself, obviously, in the bronze laver that was right there in the tabernacle court. He was to put these unique clean linen clothes on because he's obviously not supposed to be parading himself on a day like this. Now let's talk about this. The Day of Atonement essentially was this. There would be two sin offerings, according to the normal rule, with some additional ritual here, and then two burnt offerings. The two sin offerings would be a bull for the priests and a goat for the people. Now, there were two goats. We're going to cast lots for one, and one of them is going to be used for an offering. We'll come back to the other one. And then two rams for the burnt offerings. If you remember from chapter 5, verse 10, whenever you offered a sin offering, it was always followed up by a burnt offering. Because a sin offering was supposed to cleanse your sin and bring you to the Lord, and that was immediately followed by an act of worship, the burnt offering, apart from sin. So that is why you have two sin offerings and two burnt offerings here. One for the priest, one for the people. And as I said, we will return to that extra goat in just a minute. So Aaron is to be in the holy place, to, to wash himself, to dress in clean white linen. He would have Two goats, a bull, and two rams standing by. I want you to imagine the solemnity of this event. Gathering all these things together, knowing what is about to happen. Especially as the context tells us, keeping in mind what happened to Nadab and Abihu. When they approached the presence of the Lord, the Lord sent out fire and consumed them. This is all about making a way for Aaron or whoever the high priest was to enter the Holy of Holies. He's not even to dress in the normal priestly garments. He's just to go in, just him, 
in simple, clean white linen. By the way, if you look in the book of Revelation at what the saints are wearing in heaven, it is clean white linen, it says, which is probably a reference back to this here. What do we learn from this? Even the holiest of men needed to approach God clean and unadorned. In the same way, only a person who is sinless and pure could approach God as a holy high priest. It didn't matter what your rank was. You had to be in the symbol of the white linen to be clean. We just talked about cleanliness for five chapters, right? So you need to be clean to approach the Lord. But who in reality, not just ceremonially and symbolically, who is clean enough to approach the Lord? We read about this in the Psalms. Who may ascend your hill, O Lord? Clean hands and a pure heart. But who has that? Well, the short answer is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who is qualified to be our high priest. I'm going to quote from Hebrews a lot tonight because the writer to the Hebrews makes an awful lot of hay out of the Day of Atonement and its connection to Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 15, he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that captures everything we need to know about Jesus Christ being the only one that could stand in the gap for us. Because he needed to be one of us. He needed to be able to endure temptation with us for him to be able to stand in the gap. But because he was the Lord, he was without sin. He was able to stand without needing to make atonement for himself first. He was dressed in the clean white linen of his own impeccable righteousness. And this is all being prefigured here by Aaron getting dressed in these clean white linen garments. Let's move on to verses 11 through 19. And as they say, this is the money. This is the center right here. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil. And do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel." This is the center of the center of the center. Purification. 
And if you want to even break this section down structurally, right in the middle, the middle of the Torah, the center of the first five books of the Bible is Aaron sprinkling blood in the holy place, the holy of holies. There were six steps to this ceremony that I'm going to walk through with you. Number one, Aaron was to take the bull and offer that as a sin offering for himself. This was to cover his own sin and his own uncleanness. So step one, sin offering of a bull. Once that's been done, he would take a censer or a fire pan. He would take coals from that brazen altar where he had just sacrificed this bull. And he would take two handfuls of incense. What are you supposed to get from that? It's a lot of incense. It's a lot, way more than is necessary for a normal day here. This is the same incense from Exodus 30, 37, the unique recipe that nobody else was to duplicate. Hopefully you remember that. He would fill that censer with incense, lots of smoke coming up. He would go into the holy place and he would set that fire on the golden incense altar. Now, do you remember the incense altar was about this tall, about as tall as my podium here, and probably about that same dimension. It was square, it was golden, and it was directly in front of the veil behind which was the Ark of the Covenant. He was to set the fire on top of that incense altar. And there's, remember, two fistfuls of incense here. And it's all burning up so that this place would have filled with the incense. Now, once he's done that, he's to go, number three, out to get the blood of the bull, probably in a bowl or something like that. And he's to carry that blood. By this time, the incense would have filled that holy place and would have covered and obscured his view of the Ark of the Covenant as he went behind the veil. He was not to look upon the Ark of the Covenant because God said in verses 1 and 2, I dwell in the midst of the cloud between the cherubim. So quite humbly, not dressed in his brightly colored robes, probably fearfully, carrying the blood for his own sacrifice, covering his own sins. He was to go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood seven times before the Ark of the Covenant for his own sins. That's step three. He would come out. The step four, he would take the goat, the one that had the lots had been cast that was to be killed. That would be offered as a sin offering for the people. So the first thing he had to do in order to be qualified to even offer this sacrifice was to make a sacrifice for himself. It's one of the key distinctions between Aaron and Jesus. Jesus didn't have to do that. He would offer the sin offering. Same thing like before. He would take the blood of that goat and once again go into the Holy of Holies. So he would go in and out twice on the Day of Atonement. And he would sprinkle the blood, it says, on and before the mercy seat. And remember, the mercy seat is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? The cherubim were on top of it with their wings outstretched. And inside of that golden Ark of the Covenant was the broken law, the testimony, the tablets that Moses had made. And he would sprinkle that on the mercy seat. The sixth thing he would do, once he's come out of there and he's already sprinkled the blood, he would take the blood of both of them, the bull and the goat. I don't know if he mixed them or if he just took his fingers, and he was to anoint the horns of the bronze altar out in the courtyard with the blood of both of those animals. Then he was to take the blood of them both and sprinkle the bronze altar seven times. That's the ceremony. So first he sacrifices the bull, he lights the incense, goes with the blood of the bull into the holy place and sprinkles it. Then he offers the goat. He takes the blood of the goat into the Holy of Holies and he sprinkles that. Then he comes back out, he anoints the altar, the horns, and sprinkles it seven times. 
This is the entire climax towards which the Torah as a whole and the book of Leviticus specifically has been building. Even this chapter has been building up to the day of atonement. And he explains it here. and We've got to get this. Why did they need atonement? Why atonement? Why did we need at one mint from the Lord? Well, God explains it. He says it is because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. It's impurity. God is so holy. Remember, he descended on the mountain in fire in the book of Exodus, and they couldn't even let animals climb up on the hill without being shot to death with an arrow. Because the Lord is so holy and so glorious, he cannot be around human impurity, human sin. So if God is going to dwell in this tabernacle, in the midst of these people, they would need to come in once a year to cleanse themselves, and also, it says, to cleanse the tabernacle itself, so that it may remain a holy place in which the Lord can dwell. Impurity demands payment in blood. That is the first cosmic law that God taught us. He told Adam, the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. But we need to remember this. God did not just tell Adam, you will die if you eat the fruit. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, when Adam was hiding naked from God in the garment, it said that God clothed Adam with skins, Adam and Eve. And you can skip over that if you're not careful. Where did God get skins from? He would have had to kill an animal. Something had to die. Blood had to be shed for the first time to cover the sins of Adam and Eve. So not only has this been the law, God from the very beginning has demonstrated that he would take it upon himself to provide that covering. Isn't that good news? That God didn't say, y'all better go sort it out or you're going to die. He said, I'll take this upon myself. And here we see that built up to the highest degree it had been seen so far in salvation history. But here's the trouble. As New Testament believers, we get this right away. And maybe as a cynical newcomer to the scripture, you get this too. How is the blood of a goat supposed to purify the soul of a man? If, If I'm supposed to dwell in God's presence, how is killing a goat supposed to help this? Well, it's a good question. And in fact, it's a biblical question. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 3 through 4, says, In these sacrifices, referring to the ones we're talking about here, in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. Kind of like God's way of saying, don't forget, you're a sinner. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You ever wonder why he says bulls and goats? Because those were the two animals that were offered on the Day of Atonement to atone for sins. But the writer to the Hebrews gets it. But how is killing an animal supposed to help me? The answer is what he says. It's a reminder of sins. The answer is that these things served to demonstrate the seriousness of the situation. Number one, God was constantly reminding the people, not only are you a sinner, but the payment for sin is blood, death. This is what your sin deserves, and don't you forget it. As my chosen covenant people, I am giving you this entire elaborate structure of ceremony and ritual so that you will never lose the knowledge that the wages of sin is death. But it also was to point the people forward. They're waiting, like, we can't do this forever. 
God is being patient, as we read earlier in Romans 3. God is, is forbearing. He's not punishing sins, but they're waiting for the day where God's going to have to do something about this. And of course he would in the person of Jesus Christ. This ceremony was to prepare us and make all of humanity ready for the day when God would send his sacrifice to provide atonement for us. Just as Jesus Christ is the only qualified high priest, as we just said, he is also the only qualified sacrifice for sins. The Son of Man was also the Son of God. God became a man. He took upon himself flesh so that he might offer himself in our place to the Father to satisfy the righteousness of God. I'm going to read a long section from Hebrews because he says it so much better than I could, obviously. That Jesus Christ was the sacrifice we needed to cover our sins. Hebrews 9, 22-26. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Have you noticed that as we've been going through this? And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So if you refuse, by the way, to accept the blood of Jesus, it's going to be your blood that will have to be shed. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, the tabernacle, to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. We just read about that. For then Christ would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The whole point of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. All these, these Hebrew Christians that were tempted to go back to the law of Moses, the writer, whether it was Paul or whoever it was, it's an anonymous letter, he writes to them and says, Jesus is better. First of all, Jesus is a better high priest. We just talked about that because he doesn't have to pay for his own sins. Secondly, the holy place where Jesus offered himself is a better place than the old tabernacle or the old temple. Those things were just a picture of what goes on in heaven. And we discussed that at length in the book of Exodus, how it's a picture of God's throne room as seen by Ezekiel and John and others. That's where Jesus offered his own blood. And not only that, but Jesus is a better sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that can cover everybody because he is the son of God. It's not just some bull, some goat. This is the holy God, very God, Jesus Christ himself. The blood of Jesus shed on Mount Calvary was the fulfillment of every day of atonement year after year that had been anticipating God finally doing something about this. His blood was sprinkled in the holy place, accepting by, accepted by his Father God in heaven. And we know that this was accepted because in Mark 15, 38, it says that at the minute Jesus died, the veil of the temple was ripped in two. Which I believe is why the book of Acts tells us that a great many priests believed. I don't know how you see that and then say, oh, that must have meant nothing. He was just some guy, right? The veil of the temple was torn. Wasn't that the first thing we read in chapter 16? The prohibition? Don't come past this curtain. 
Don't come into my holy place. Don't even look upon it. So light so much incense that it fogs your vision so that you don't look upon me in my holy place. But when Jesus died, that veil was ripped wide open and there's the Ark of the Covenant representative of the presence of God for all to see because for the first time since the Garden of Eden, the access to God has been opened because a perfect sacrifice has been offered and now the way is open not just for a year through rituals and through very careful ceremonies, but through open, unlimited access through God's grace. That's what Jesus won for us at the cross. Access to God. In order for God's presence to dwell even in this limited form among the children of Israel, purification was needed. Purification for the priests, purification for the holy place, and purification for the people. Likewise for us, if we want God to dwell with us, then we need to be purified. And our Lord Jesus has made it possible not just for God to dwell with us, but to dwell in us. John 14, 17, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, He dwells with you and shall be in you. And this is why Paul and the others in the New Testament will talk about how we are the temple, the tabernacle of the living God. We're not looking for a room anymore where God lives. He's come to dwell within us. I hope you can grasp the magnitude of the blessing that is yours in Christ. I hope you never take your devotions lightly again. What it costs for you to sit in the morning and have real sweet communion with the Holy Spirit. It costs everything. But he did pay the price. Praise the Lord. Verse 20 through 22. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. All right, so we have hit the center of our outline here. It started out by God giving a prohibition. You cannot come in to my holy place. Then we moved on to the setup. I want you to be able to come into my holy place. So here's everything you're going to need. Then we discussed the scapegoat and how it was chosen. We're about to hit that again. Right in the center is the purification that was made for the people to come into God's presence. Now we're on our way back out of this outline, and we're going to hit a parallel section discussing that scapegoat. So if you've ever wondered why it seems like the Bible comes back to certain points, perhaps it's structured chiastically like this chapter is. And you can go chiasm crazy and find it everywhere. But I think this is a pretty good way of putting it. The ceremony of the scapegoat. Now we saw back in verses 7 through 10, they were to bring two goats. And these goats, they were to cast lots for them. This, usually the way they would do it is they would put uh, two stones, one black, one white, or something to that effect. Maybe they would write the name of the Lord and the wilderness on one or the other. They would put it in a jar or a cup or a bag or something, and they would shake it until one of them popped out. And they would say, Lord, is this the sheep or is this the goat to be sacrificed or to be sent away? And they would shake it, and if, if the Lord pops out, this is the one to be sacrificed. Uh, it was done a number of ways. The last time we see people casting lots in the Bible is in the book of Acts when Matthias was selected as the 12th apostle. 
And it's supposed to provide a contrast between the old covenant way of doing things and the new covenant way of doing things. Because right in the middle, the Holy Spirit comes. And God goes, that's the last time you're going to make a decision that way. Because I'm going to speak to you directly. Isn't that great? In any case, lots have already been cast to determine which goat is sacrificed. The one that was to be sacrificed has already been. They've gone into the holy place. They've sprinkled the blood. And now we're going to talk about the goat, as it said earlier, for Azazel. And this is how the ESV and most of the newer translations translate that. Let's talk about what this might mean. This is what's called a transliteration, meaning they're not translating the word. They are just putting the word as it stands in Hebrew into our text. Right? So maybe if you've ever been reading a book where it includes... Uh, elements from a foreign country or something, and it'll have like an italicized word. They're not translating it. They're giving you the actual word. So that's what they're doing here. When they do the same thing with Sheol, for example. They're not translating it. They're just putting the word as it stands in Hebrew. Same thing here. And the reason they do that is because we are really not quite sure what this means. In context, it's pretty clear what it means. So we're not wondering about what happened here. It's just this word specifically and what it means because it is only included in this chapter. So to try and find it in a different context and see what it might have meant is, is difficult. So there's, there's four main options here, and I'm going to go through these. Each one of these, without getting into all the details, is based on a different proposed etymology of the word. Etymology means what words come together to form this word. What form is it in? Uh, we, we don't parse words as much as uh, Hebrew and Greek do. But it, there's different options of what it could be. So let's just get through these. Number one is the traditional one, the scapegoat. Now, the English word scapegoat, well, we know what goat means. What does scape mean? Well, it's like the word escape. So it's like the escape goat or the going away goat. That you would translate this as the goat that is to be sent away. This is how the Septuagint translates it, which was the Greek translation. It's also how the Vulgate translated it, which was the Latin translation, which the church used for a very long time. That's the first option. Number two is it's translated as an abstract noun. So it's not describing anything specific. It's just the goat of, and the proposed translation you'll see is entire removal. The goat of removal. That's an abstract noun, right? You can't hold removal in your hand. It's abstract. So it's same idea, you can see. These all kind of mean the same thing, essentially. Um, that's, that's option number two. Number three is that this is coming from a word that describes the harshness or the hardness of the desert. So the goat of the wilderness. One, not for Azazel, but for the wilderness. Or for the precipice is another proposed translation. Uh, the difficulty with that is there are Hebrew words for wilderness and precipice, and it's not this one. The fourth one, and this is the one that has become popular lately, is that this is a proper noun referring to some kind of devil or demon. So we have the word, for example, Beelzebub in the Bible. You have the word Apollyon in the Bible or Legion. These are proper names assigned to demons. And that Azazel would be a name of a, of a demon that lived in the wilderness. So that it, this makes some sense because you're saying one goat for the Lord and one goat for the devil. That, that kind of has some parallelism to it, and that you're sending the sins away to the devil. Now, I must say, not much is gained or lost by this decision. It doesn't affect your theology in any major way. We know what this passage means. We know what it's trying to communicate. Uh, but I will say, I think the first option is still the best one. It's the goat that is to be sent away. 
it, it's not, I think, a perfect option, but that is the way that it was translated in the Greek when they made their official translation. I also think that it, well, you get real dicey when you start introducing like named demons into the Bible. Because what, what not everybody, but what some people will say is Azazel is a, is a specific demon. And this goes back to the original version of this ritual when they didn't believe in God and they believed they were making a sacrifice to the devil. Well, we don't believe that. So that's one less reason for us to think it. And also our sins aren't sent away to Satan. Our sins are banished away, right? Satan is not the king of hell. That's that Satan's final destination is hell. So I, I think in any, however you want to do this is, is fine, but this, this is why the translators just leave it as Azazel and the newer ones, because it could be any one of those things. But let's see what actually happened with this thing. So the blood rituals are complete. We've already sprinkled the blood. The high priest would then go to the scapegoat, lay both his hands upon it, which is notable because usually when you're in this kind of uh, ceremony, you'd only lean one hand upon the goat. But because he's doing it for himself and the people, he leans both hands on the goat's head and he confessed the sins of the people. I would imagine this would be done with great solemnity, that he would have thought this over beforehand. He would have planned, what are we confessing? And I don't think this would have been just a standard list. Imagine if it was in the year that uh, David took a census of the people. Maybe the priest would have gone through the same usual things. We've been unclean. We've committed adultery. We've lied. Lord, please forgive us for we took a census of your people when we were not supposed to. I think there would have been, uh, this would have been a really great moment of meditation and thought for the people to realize how have we as a culture offended God this year. Something to be said for that, I think. But then that goat would be sent away into the wilderness. And it says there was a man whose job it was to drive that goat out into the wilderness so that it never came back. Hebrew tradition tells us that at some point they started driving this thing off a cliff. That's not what the Bible says, but uh, Jewish tradition tells us that they would drive this goat into the wilderness and then drive it backwards over a cliff. Not sure why backwards, but that's just what it said. In any case, the idea is the sins of the people have been placed upon this goat. It's been sent away, never to come back. The picture is, that's what the Lord does with our sins, right? He separates them so that they're never coming back. And Jesus, in this picture, is represented both by the sacrificial goat and by the scapegoat that bore our sins away. Because Jesus did shed his blood for purification, but Jesus also bore our sins in his body on the cross. And I, I'm a little befuddled by the fact that some of these commentaries that I read really oppose that idea. We can't say that Jesus is the scapegoat, that our sins were upon him. I'm like, that's exactly what we, we think. It's exactly what we need. And then they, they want to try to like make it an either or. Well, which one is it? The one that died or the one that bore our sins? Well, it's, it's both of those things, right? Let's read Isaiah 53, which is a familiar passage to you with the idea of the scapegoat in mind and see if you can't pick up on a few things. Isaiah 53, four through six, prophesying Jesus said, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Did you catch that? He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. 
Our iniquity was laid upon him. I, I, in agreement with several other great Bible teachers, believe that this is scapegoat language. That is saying Jesus bore our sins just like this goat was to bear our sins. And it reminds me of, of that famous hymn written by Horatio Spafford. You know it. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Of course, is is the hymn, It Is Well. You don't bear your sin anymore. You're not carrying your sin any longer. Jesus is carrying your sin. And the psalm tells us that the Lord takes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Classic illustration, but it bears repeating. If you've traveled north far enough, you're going to go over the North Pole and start going south again. You can fly east for the rest of your life. You can fly west for the rest of your life, and they're never going to meet each other. I'm not even sure if the psalmist understood that point of geography, but the Lord did when he inspired it. That's how far he's carried your sins away. If your faith is in Christ, if his blood counts for you, there's nothing left for Satan to accuse. If he comes at you and wants to point out your sins and all the things you've done, you say, my sins are on the back of a goat in the desert somewhere. So I don't know what you're talking to me for. Jesus Christ bore my sins on the tree. He died on the cross and rose again and left all that stuff in the grave. God was teaching Israel through this ceremony what to expect when the fulfillment came. So now that we are living in the fulfillment, let's not doubt it. Let's revel in the fact that we're living in the days where the true scapegoat has come, borne our sins, and then by his resurrection shed all of those sins and risen in glory. And now, as Paul said in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My sin is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. For the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Amen? Stop walking in condemnation and guilt. The Lord has already taken your sins away. Well, let's move on now to verse 23 through 28. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place, put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. So moving through our outline... We're now in the opposite part of the outline of the setup. Remember, the Lord said, you're not able to come in. Here's everything you're going to need. So now that we've already had the ceremony of the scapegoat and of purification, this is how they will essentially tear down, right? This is now that we're done. How are we going to clean up from all this? Aaron would remove his linen garments in the holy place. Notice that he was to leave these garments there. So perhaps they would be removed to be washed or to be sized for the next priest. It doesn't mention that. But he would leave them in the holy place at least that day, come out, wash in the bronze laver, and then change back into his normal priestly robes, the blue robe and the ephod and the turban with the gold plate and all of that. 
Now, this is when he would go and offer both of those rams as burnt offerings. So now all five of these animals are accounted for. We had a bull for a sin offering for the priest. We had a goat as a sin offering for the people. You had the scapegoat that was sent away. And now two rams that are both offered as burnt offerings. Now remember, a burnt offering always followed a sin offering, especially here. Why? Because now that your sin has been cleansed, the first thing you're to do is to come to the Lord and worship him with nothing in between you. And that is what he is doing on behalf of himself and for the people. It's a great picture there that you could spend some time meditating meditating on about repentance. Because a lot of times we pray and we ask God for forgiveness and then we think we've got to shuffle around with our head down for a few days before we can come and start rejoicing in the Lord again. When in fact God mandated that when my sin, when your sins are forgiven, the first thing I want you to do is come and worship me. Isn't that great? Now normally with a sin offering, the priests would have access to eat the fat portions, but not on the Day of Atonement. Those would be burned up as well. So, Burnt offerings are offered. Then you take everything that's left of the sin offering. Remember, they would butcher it. And that was to be burned up also. The man who led the goat into the wilderness would need to wash his clothes, wash himself, and then he could return back into the camp. Also, everything that was left of the previous goat and bull. So he says the intestines and the hide and things like that that were not to be burned because they would defile the altar. Those would not be placed into the ash heap there. They would ceremonially be taken and burned outside the camp. And that man that did that would also have to change his clothes, wash them, and wash himself before returning. Remember, this is the year where we're wiping the slate clean. Everything is clean. Everything is forgiven. We're starting fresh. For another year. And there's an interesting point that the writer to the Hebrews makes in Hebrews 13. That we know for a fact that Jesus took the full weight of our sin. Because he too was cast out of the camp. Like the offal and the remains of the bull and the goat. Hebrews 13, 11 through 13 says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. We just read that. He's making reference to Leviticus 16. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Can you see the layers of the the symbolism and the prophecy and the picture that was being painted by this ceremony? Even the disposal of the trash was representing Jesus Christ. So how can, how can that, burning up the undesirable pieces of these sacrifices outside the camp, represent Jesus Christ? Because he's saying Jesus bore our iniquity and our uncleanness and was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem, was he not? Because Jesus bore not just the penalty of sin, he bore the shame of sin as well. He was stripped naked, he was beaten, he bore a crown of thorns. He couldn't even carry his own cross up the hill. He was mocked by the soldiers. He was mocked by the Pharisees. He was abandoned by his friends, mocked by the other guy being crucified right next to him. He cries out to God for help and they start teasing him. He took the shame of sin. You need to know this. It was an ignominious death that Jesus suffered. It wasn't pretty. This was a death for criminals and rebels. You see this, for example, in in various wars when generals or officers will be captured and they'll insist that they be executed by firing squad rather than being hanged. 
Because for them, firing squad is a soldier's death. Being hanged is a criminal's death. And they feel like it would be a shame upon them. And very often that was an act of mercy that was granted generals and soldiers throughout war. Well, Jesus got the shameful death. He didn't get an honorable death. He was outside the camp like the refuse that was left over from these sacrifices. And the writer to the Hebrews makes a connection. There is a corresponding scorn that the world has for the gospel and for Jesus. We sit here and we describe it and I could see the smiles on your faces and on mine too as we talk about the forgiveness. I don't bear my sins anymore. I've been purified and I have access to God. But the world looks at that and despises it. And we know that. We're learning this. People are becoming more and more brazen in their denunciation of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 15, 20 that we ought to expect exactly that. He said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. We need to remember that and not react in shock and panic when the world starts hating us loudly. Because that means, all right, we're doing something right because we're standing with Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are you when they revile you and say all sorts of wicked things against you falsely for my name's sake. So when you see in the news where somebody writes some really slanderous, untruthful attack against some Christian faith leader or prominent preacher, just know that Jesus said, blessed are you when that happens to you. Because if Jesus was willing to share in our uncleanness and bear our sins on the cross, then how can we balk at enduring the insults and the rejection from the world? We've got to own it and not change our approach or change our doctrine or change the way we speak about Jesus because of the way the world is moving. Jesus came to save the world, and he knew that in order to do that, he would have to endure their reproach and their scorn. It's the same thing for you, Christian. Don't make an idol out of the approval of people. The only person you need to please is our Heavenly Father. And above all else, I mean, this glorious atonement that we're talking about today has saved your soul. It saved your life. Don't be ashamed of him. You stand boldly and say, yes. I believe in every word that he said. That's my Jesus. I'm proud to stand with him. I don't care if you mock. I don't care if you insult. I don't care. I stand for my Lord because he's done everything for me. Outside the camp, if necessary. And it sure feels like, at least in certain parts of our country, Christians are being pushed to the outside of the camp. And then, you know, today it's this group. In a few years, it might be another group doing that. Satan doesn't really care who's on top as long as the church is being shoved to the bottom. But Jesus told us to expect exactly that. So we shouldn't be surprised, like Peter said, but bear the reproach gladly and boldly. We'll bring it to a close now, verses 29 through 34. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, we'll discuss that, and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. 
And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. So we come to the end of our outline. Verses 1 and 2, we started out with a prohibition. You can't come into my holy place. But the Lord also says, but I'm going to do something about that. Because I really want to dwell in the midst of my people. So he gives them this setup. Here's everything you're going to need, Aaron, to get ready for this. Then he says, the scapegoat. Select one goat to be killed and one to be sent away. Then right in the heart of that, you've got the purification ceremony where the blood would be sprinkled in the holy place. And in fact, the center of that center is the sprinkling itself. And then we come back out of that chiasm and the scapegoat is sent away into the wilderness. Then we come down to the cleanup. Now that you've finished this ceremony that allows us to be together, just like the former section told them how to get ready, this tells them how to come out of that ceremony. And then the last section is not a prohibition, but an invitation. God is not saying, you can't come in here. He says, every year I want you to do this. Can you see how this, this structure, this outline works? We begin with something that God wants to fix. We go down into the center and what happens in the middle pivots it. So we come out to the other end that now that problem has been solved. That that problem that you can't come in here, God goes, but I want you in here. So here's how you're going to do it. And you got to remember to do it every year to make atonement for everyone so that I can dwell in your midst. I hope you can see that we are at the center of the center of the center The center of the Pentateuch is Leviticus. The center of Leviticus is chapter 16. And the center of chapter 16 is the sprinkling of the blood in the Holy of Holies. God is telling us how we might approach him. And he even gives them a date. This today is known as Yom Kippur among the Jews. And it is still celebrated on the 10th day of the 7th month. This is the, the Hebrew calendar, which is lunar and it's different from ours. This is celebrated now between September 14th and October 14th. So it tells us about what time of year we're sitting at here. And it also seems to me, in verse 34, Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses, that the first ceremony they went through as ordained priests was to offer up the Day of Atonement. So you might say the day Nadab and Abihu died, the first thing they did was make atonement. Because they had to cleanse the tabernacle, right? Because it had been, been filled with the blood of these unclean people. And they were to keep it as a Sabbath day. Nobody rests, not even, well, I'm not a Hebrew, I'm not a Jew. If you're living here, you're taking a Sabbath day today. Why? It's the Day of Atonement. This is the highest day in the Hebrew calendar. And it says they were to afflict themselves, which is an interesting word. The Hebrew word is anah, and it means in various contexts either to humble or even to oppress. And oppress and humble, you can see how they're connected, because if you're oppressing somebody, you're forcing them down, right? You're, you're keeping them down. So this is the sense. But the Lord doesn't just tell them to humble themselves. He uses a very strong word, afflict yourselves. This isn't saying hurt yourself or anything like that. But this is a word that is commonly referenced in the Bible to mourning and to fasting. In Psalm 35, 13, David writes, When they were sick, he's talking about the people that had betrayed him. He said, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I, same word, afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with my head bowed on my chest. So the way that David, Anna, afflicted himself, according to Psalm 35, was to wear sackcloth, to fast, 
and to pray with his head bowed down as opposed to his head lifted up to heaven. The different postures mean things in the Old Testament here. So I can imagine this would have been a day not just of fasting, not just of rest, but also of solemnity, of mourning, of meditating on the fact that we need this ritual because we're sinners. Very similar in a lot of ways to Good Friday. We love Good Friday. It's a good day because it's when Jesus died. But it is also very often a solemn one, isn't it? Because you're remembering that it was my sin that put Jesus on that cross. And I think that that's a very appropriate parallel to this section here because that was the fulfillment of this. And the priest, after Aaron and moving forward, was to fulfill this ceremony to make atonement for sins, for uncleanness. And they celebrated the first day of atonement. Now, the Hebrews, or I should say the Jews, they celebrate Yom Kippur by a day of meditation and prayer. Which I suppose is, is fine, but I fail to understand how you can read this passage and think that it requires anything other than a blood sacrifice to atone for sins. And they don't have that. This is exactly what Hosea prophesied in Hosea 3, that they would dwell many days without a temple, without an altar, without sacrifice. But Yom Kippur is incomplete according to the Torah itself. But ultimately, as we've said, this was a picture of our Lord Jesus who made atonement for all our sins on Mount Calvary. And I love how not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament just seems to, every arrow is pointing to Jesus. Every sacrifice points to Christ. Every ceremony points to Christ. Every festival, as we see, points to Christ. And it's not just us making it up. The New Testament writers, they, they saw Jesus everywhere when they opened up the scriptures. Not just the prophets, but even the law itself. It would have been amazing to be part of the early church and celebrating your first day of atonement after Jesus had died and, and gone up to heaven and been risen again. You'd be like, wait a minute. This is just like what he did. He carried our sins away, and we're never going to see them again. And, and he also was taken outside the camp, and this would have opened their minds to understand what God has done. And just like the people were to be humbled, I think we're humbled too when we consider what God has done for us. And yet, just like we say on Good Friday, Sunday's coming, joy overwhelms sorrow over sin if you are in Christ. I lament that I'm a sinner, but I rejoice with joy inexpressible that my sin has been taken away. I've been cleansed and purified by the blood of Jesus.